you'll please take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 21. We will be finishing our study on the Longing for Heaven series and then beginning to look at the Advent. Before we get going with today's study, I need to announce a couple things. Uh, One, in regards to the Christmas tree gifts, uh, there was a technical glitch with printing some of the tags that we're trying to get them done. So it should be done by the end um, of the service this morning, so you feel free to pick those tags up. And then secondly, I need to give you an announcement about one of our elders, Jim Dyke. Uh, Jim, uh, as you've heard during the prayer time, is being uh, kind of overwhelmed right now in life with uh, his work and the busyness of that, as well as uh, taking care of his brother and extended family and his father over in Orlando. So Jim has requested a sabbatical year from the session. So he is stepping down for this next year. And so with that, I will be stepping in, at least temporarily, to shepherd his shepherding group, and they have been uh, communicated to. So I will be uh, your shepherding elder for this coming year, and then also stepping into some of the worship uh, activities. And so uh, please be in prayer for Jim, continue to uplift him, um, and then pray for me as I add a few more things to the list and uh, get the, the responsibility and the privilege and the honor of being a part of your lives. And so... Uh, Um, please uh, make note of that, and uh, please be praying. Uh, Before we read the the passage, uh, we're here today, again, we're talking about longing for heaven, and one of the issues that we see at the very end that we didn't deal with last week was one of the four pictures. So we looked at the city, we looked at the temple, we looked at the garden, but the one we passed over was the one about the bride. And so why does God describe the bride as continuing the relationship that he has with us, especially as we look towards heaven? Well, what we have to understand is that marriage is both a good and a bad thing here on earth. So some people think of marriage and it sends them to a very bad place. Um, They could have been in a very abusive relationship. They could have been in an unloving relationship. Um, Others... It seems to be one of the greatest things, and it is one of the greatest things that God has given to us. As I was doing a study, I came across these two stories about Winston Churchill. It said at a dinner party, a woman once turned to Winston Churchill saying, Sir, if you were my husband, I would give you poison to drink. To which Winston Churchill replied, Madam, if you were my wife, I would drink it. There was also at another a dinner party, the questions, were asked, the questions were asked of the guests, if you could be anyone else, who would you rather be? Everyone, of course, wanted to know what Winston Churchill would say to such a question. And he responded, if I could be anyone else, I'd be Lady Churchill's second husband. A happy marriage is a great blessing, and all who know it would never exchange it. It's something worth fighting for, especially in an age that discounts its value, distorts its meaning. So praise God that he gives to us a most accurate example of what it means to have a godly marriage. And it's one that should truly be a place where people will see your marriage Or see your relationships. And I don't want you to check out if you don't have a husband. I don't want you to check out if you're a young person. I don't want you to check out because you think this doesn't apply to me. If you are a Christian, you are a part of the bride of Christ. 
And so I want you, as you hear these words, as you begin to unpack this with me, I want you to try to get into a mindset of a, of a Jewish person during the time of Jesus in regards to what it means to be wedded. So let's look at Revelation chapter 21. And we're looking at the first eight verses and pay especially, uh, especially to the verses two through four. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. For he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done, for I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, again, as we finish this study, Lord, I do pray that we have been encouraged to not think of heaven as boring or just that we're going to be on clouds strumming harps or in a long Sunday service for eternity. But, Father, that we would see the richness and the beauty and the strength. And Lord, even today that we will see that we will be in your presence and we will know you and be known by you completely. Father, let us yearn. Let us be encouraged. Lord, let us long to be in heaven and especially the new heavens and the new earth with you forevermore. For this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So again, I want you to think about this passage and other passages that we're going to look at this morning in regards to a Jewish wedding process. So the first thing that happens is betrothal. So there is a prospective bride. And that bride for us is the church. And we know this because the scripture tells us in Isaiah 54, 5, you can write these down, 2 Corinthians eleven two 2, and Ephesians 5, 25, and 31, and 32. It's equated that the bride of Christ is the church. And the church is made up of all believers, all Old Testament and New Testament believers, and all nations, all tribes, all tongues come together as the bride of Christ. And so we are unified to him. And as we are his prospective bride, we are also very beloved by him. 
Now, again, I want you to think of this illustration. There's a pastor that talked about he was a brother and he had his, his older brother uh, was going to get married and he had some reservations. He thought he was getting married a little too young. And so he started to, to talk to his brother about it. But then one day as he was in the car, he began to start talking about the fiance. At which point the brother pulled the car over and stuck his finger into his brother's chest and said, don't you ever, ever, ever talk about my future wife like that. You can talk to me as much as you want, but don't you ever talk. And we get that, don't we? We understand that. I was a part of a family that had three older brothers and a younger sister. Now, that being that younger sister, she obviously had some really good things and she had some rough things. But one of the things that she never had to worry about was somebody talking bad about her at school. Now, it might be that we had to go back to her and say, hey, you know what they were saying? It's really true. You need to, you need to start brushing your teeth a little bit more. <laughs> but nobody was going to talk about my sister having bad breath. Why? Because it's beloved. Jesus so loves the church that, again, what he does for us is what John has already prayed. He humbled himself and came to earth. He comes to the home of the bride. Now, I want you to understand that that is part of the betrothal. It was the duty of the husband-to-be, the bride, the groom, to go to the bride's house, and there he made a what? A contract. Because there was a purchase price for the bride. And so what they entered into, first of all, was a covenant. This is a legal contract. So again, at that moment, it became binding. At that very moment. So to break it, you would have to divorce. That's why we hear the story of Mary and Joseph, remember? And Joseph said he was going to divorce her quietly. Because they were already betrothed to one another. So there was already a legal binding. It was as if they were married. And so this is what happening. God comes and he gives to us this covenant relationship. He makes a binding relationship between Jesus and the church. Now, in that binding relationship, there becomes a set price. It's known as the dowry. It's the cost for the bride. Now, again, uh, some of you have heard my story with Christina because Christina was born in Ethiopia. Um, Her father made this thing of, well, you know, my daughter was born in Ethiopia and Africa has different rules than here in America. And so you have to give a dowry for my daughter. I'm like, what are you talking about, crazy old man? I didn't say that because I wasn't married yet. It's like, yes, sir. So what do you want? And again, there, he made a contract. And so I had to give him a Wendy's hamburger. And I had to give him my Winnie the Pooh. He said, what's the most precious thing to you? And don't talk about the Winnie the Pooh. That's another story. But I was like, this is what I have. And so he actually made it apart because one of my groomsmen was someone from Uganda. And so we went through the whole process of giving the dowry and being presented to the person, being presented to the brother, being presented to the husband. And if they all accepted, then there was a a match. Well, think about the dowry that was given for the church. It wasn't a price. It was Jesus's life. 
Now, I want you to think about this because women during this period were not thought of as oogly-googly like I see with, you know, Palmer and, and Caroline. You know, when, she, when he walked down, she was like, ooh, look at you. <laughs> women were an object, an object to be possessed. And so there is a specific price for that object. You're taking something away from me. And she does dishes and she washes and she does stuff. So now my household is going to be less. What are you going to repay me? Jesus changes the whole perspective of marriage. And he says, I love my to-be wife. And she's not an object to be possessed. She's an object that becomes the truly the placement of my heart. And so Jesus gives his life for his bride. And that should be the example to us because the bride becomes very cherished to him. And then there's the power to fulfill this obligation. How do you fulfill this obligation of this covenant relationship? And for us in the church, we're given the Holy Spirit. We're given the ability to say, I'm going to die to myself. I'm going to live for my wife. And so we have this purchase price that was given, but then there's also the start of preparation. Because preparation begins with the bridal chamber. And usually this is a room that was added to the father's house. It's the passage that um, Mike Palmer read for us earlier from John 14, 1 through 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. For there where I am, may you be also. So Jesus has to go back. And he has to prepare for us a room, just like any groom would do. He goes back to prepare this room. But we also have to remember is not only is he going to prepare this room for his bride, but we have to remind ourselves about the place of the father. Because in this period, it's the father who is the one who decides the time that is right. It's the father who says, I now give you permission to go back and get your bride. It's why Jesus says, I don't know the day or the time. I'm not making this up, people. This is in the Bible. And this is a great picture that God is giving to us. And Jesus said very clearly that God is the one who's going to decide, God the Father, who's going to decide when Jesus gets to come back. And when he comes back, he's coming back for his bride. And so we have this betrothal period, and that puts us to the place where we are now, which is waiting. We're in a period of waiting. And so in the betrothal period, it was at least usually a a year before the bride would, before the groom would come back for his bride. A year. So you're married, but you're still waiting. Now, why are you waiting? Well, there's a couple things that are going on. The first thing is there's a cleansing. For it said there was a washing. There's a ceremonial washing. Whoops, too quick. 
There's a ceremony washing go on. Okay, this is where even in Africa they have this saying, there's never an ugly bride. Because you go through a process of preparation for the big day. So there's cleansing. Here in Florida, the thing that I hear when I'm going through premarital counseling and stuff like that is they prepare for their day, especially if it's going to be on the beach and if they have a certain kind of dress or whatever. I don't want to have tan lines. I don't want to have this. So they're getting prepared. And we understand that. There's a, a, a preparation, so there's a washing. But we go to Ephesians. Turn with me there. Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 25. This is what he says. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's what Christ is doing for the church. He's giving us a cleansing, and it's a cleansing through the word. We should allow the word to wash over us, to cleanse us in such a way that we are preparing the bride for ourselves. Listen to what, there was a pastor strain who gave this quote. A marriage is supposed to put those who view it in mind of the way that Jesus cares for his bride, for his people, and the way his people follow their Savior, the Lord Jesus. Which means Jesus loves the church. So the church should delight in him. Jesus dies for the church. So the church should trust in him. Jesus shepherds and cares for the church, and the church should follow him. Our earthly marriages should emulate what's going on with our wedding that's going to happen between the church and Christ. And when people see our marriages, it should be something that draws them to the gospel message. And so we are cleansed with the word, but it also brings us to a place of purity. We'll read from Revelation 19 and 7, but I want you to keep this in mind. Does the wife, does your wife, does your mom, does your sister, do the women in this church, if you are a man, do they look more like Jesus because of you? Do you seek the purity within them? Do you want them to be in love with Jesus more than you? This is what it says in Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 8. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Are we prepared in purity? Have we been cleansed with the word? Have we been prepared in purity and not legalism? We're not doing these good things so as to just become what I see a lot of times is people become good roommates. They no longer are loving each other. They're no longer growing in their their marriage with one another. They're no longer dating. They just exist together. But if the husband is seeking the purity of his wife, then the wife's desire would be one to be pure for him. There's co-equal desires. 
She doesn't need to be pure so she doesn't get yelled at or she doesn't need to get um, beat upon. She becomes pure because it's her desire. She wants to please her husband because the husband takes care of the wife. And that's the example that God gives to us. And when our wives feel that way, then what do they become? They become radiant. Look at, again, the passage from Revelation 21, starting at verse 2. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Then listen what you hear God say. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their guide. And then listen to this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And remember, we, we saw last week the, the jewels and the pearls that are there. This bride is the most gorgeous bride that you've ever seen. And it's a royal wedding that's coming. So think what they do in England. No good. No good. Compared to the broom, to the groom and the bride that's going to be at the end of time. This is what we look forward to. For she is adorned and beautiful beyond compare. And listen, everyone recognizes the bride. You don't have to guess who's getting married today. With the groom, he's expendable. For us. Not with Jesus, but with us. They look the same, usually the same outfits. You never question who's the bride. Never. Because she's adorned and ready. Now, during this time, not only is she preparing herself, but she's also longing. Twelve months is a long time to wait on your husband. But here's what she has to be. She's in contract. She's technically married. So she's longing to be faithful. She's being faithful because she is solely devoted to her husband. She only has eyes for him. And so in the midst, she's being faithful to him because she's awaiting his return. Because it's the groom that comes in a processional to get his bride. This is where, um, if you turn to Matthew chapter 25, if you remember, this is the story of the the, uh, ten virgins. It says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who give their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. 
Afterwards, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now, again, there is a story, a very practical story. There was a woman who was very gifted in singing and was actually charged to come and sing at this very wealthy man's wedding. But she did not RSVP for the feast. So here's what's happened very awkwardly. She comes, she sings at the wedding, she gets paid for singing at the wedding, but she goes up for the reception and she's not allowed in. What in the world? Do you not know that I was the one who sang at the wedding? Of course I was invited to the reception. Your name is not on the list. So here's the singer had to leave. God's giving us this warning. Don't be foolish. Be ready for him to return at any moment. Are you waiting and ready for Christ to return? And if you are, then here is what happens. There is a procession. Remember what we just read in Matthew 25? They call out. It's time to bring and usher in the bride to the groom. The groom's come for her. Sound like a second coming? Jesus is coming back, and he's coming back for his bride. And we're going to be ushered as part of it, those that are faithful and found to be ready. And when we find ourselves in this procession, then we get to see the wedding ceremony. Now, again, I I don't know if all of this was there during Jesus' time, but there's a lot of symbolism in regards to Jewish weddings, so I want to walk you through it a little bit. So we're looking at the ceremony itself now, and the first thing that happens is there's a calling to the Word of God. Now, this usually happens the Sabbath before the wedding. So, again, it's not like modern-day America where you're looking at, okay, I'm going to give so many hours to this couple today, and then we're out. Okay? This is a long, extended process that happens with Jewish weddings. So the Sabbath before, there would be a calling to the Word of God. And so the groom would come, and sometimes it was the whole wedding party that would come, and they would have the blessing of the Word, the blessing of the Torah over their marriage. At which point when they would leave, they would be, listen, pelted, not pelted, showered. Showered with candy and raisins and sometimes nuts. Now, why is that? We throw rice if you want to explode birds, or you throw petals or whatever at our people when they leave. Okay, some people use bubbles now. Okay, but here there was symbolic meaning. They threw candy and raisins because that was a symbol of the sweetness and the fruitfulness of the lives of those who were entering into the estate. So you have this time where they're called to the word. And to have the word oversee their whole marriage relationship. But then in a Jewish wedding, if you've ever been to one, they actually sign the vows. There's a contract. So they actually sign the contract. And it states the obligations of the man in regards to the woman. Now, keep this in regards to the modern day vows that we do. 
Because there is a purpose. And again, you should be going to a wedding where, again, there's two sets of vows. The first set of vows is given to God. That's why the the bride and the groom face the one who officiates. For in our weddings, I represent the church and ultimately God. And so they vow before God that they will enter into this covenant relationship. And that's why the father stands between them. Because the father says, I'm not giving up my covenant responsibility until this man covets before all of these witnesses that he's going to do right by my daughter. Until he does that and promises that, I'm not letting her go. At that moment, then what I do is I turn the the bride and the groom to each other because there are vows to one another. You promise to each other. Christ has promised to us, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people and you're going to receive my glory. You're going to reign with me. And all you have to do is what they didn't do in the garden. Obey my commandments. God does not start the process over. He recreates what started off so right. And so he recreates for us in these vows, but they also end with blessings. Now there's seven blessings at a Jewish um, wedding, and they all talk about the source of life, okay, more specifically God. And so here are the seven blessings. Blessed is the source of life. Blessed is the source of joy. Blessed is the source of generosity. Blessed is the source of love. Blessed is the source of healing. Blessed is the source of safety. Blessed is the source of life. Seven blessings given over top of the couple. And it's given in the ceremony. And then when they enter the feast, it's given seven more days. So they go and feast for seven days. And these blessings are upon it. It's where we kind of get our unity ceremony. If you've ever been to a wedding, in a modern day wedding, and they do either salt or pepper. They do sand together. They do wine where you bring up a separate glass of wine and you pour it into one cup and then they both drink it because the idea is you're becoming one and you can never pull it apart ever again. You can't separate the two wines. They become one. You can't separate the sands, the grains of sand. They become one. That's the understanding. There is a coming together of the people where there is the blessing of God upon it. And when there's the blessing, then there comes the consummation. Now for the church now, because we don't do it like in the old days, but there is a place of seclusion. And for 10 minutes in modern day, there are 10 minutes are taken to a room where it's just the husband and the wife now. Why? Because a woman was never ever to be alone with anyone except her husband. So there's a unique coming together. It's what the Bible says. The two become one. And there's an intimacy. And listen, you can have a contract without love. Remember, women were objects. So you could have entered into the contract. You could have said, I'm obligated, but not love the person. Jesus comes and loves his church. He gives himself for her. He cleanses 
He cleanses her. He then gives himself. Remember what the Bible says? God will now dwell with his people forevermore. Heaven and earth mix in such a way that there's not that big distinction anymore. We say, oh, I'm going to go to heaven. We know we're going away somewhere. There's not going to be that distinction anymore. Well, where does heaven start and the earth stop? We don't know anymore because it's so entwined. God is with us and we know him intimately. This, even as Presbyterians, this should blow our minds. Blow our minds. That the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of all the universe, so loves you that he's going to allow you to know him. And see him face to face. All other religions, listen, and I want to pound and then people get offended and send me text. Every other religion makes the people grovel before God. You have to earn his presence. God comes to us and says he gives us the rights as the bride to stand and come and know him fully and be fully known. That's the day we look forward to. And listen, I want you to get this picture because as beautiful as the bride is and as beautiful as she is adorned, Listen, I've never ever seen a bride when the doors are open, walk down the aisle, showing off her dress, going, look at this. This is gorgeous. Does everybody see my dress? Every bride has eyes only for the husband. Everything else doesn't matter. She only has eyes for the husband. Is that how your marriage is? Is that, young men, how you treat your mothers and your sisters? Do you seek for them to be honored and glorified? And women, young women, little girls, do you see your brothers and your father, your grandfather, do you seek them and have eyes for them only? And after the ceremony, there comes the time where there's the wedding feast. And it's a thing that happens, again, for seven days. But it's a thing for the whole community. The whole community. And part of the the tradition is, is you would always invite someone else who wasn't invited to the wedding. You always add to the community every day for the feast. And as they get a part of the community, listen, remember, this is a meal of redemption. We go back to the Lord's Supper and to Passover in the Old Testament. Remember, Christ redeems his bride. And as he redeems her, he then gives to her all the blessings of what it means to be married. All Christ's glory is given to his bride. Think about this, men. When you were... Again, and I know some of you had bad marriages, and this is hard for you. Some of you have gone through trials. Okay, I get it. Okay, my parents had a horrible marriage. Okay, but for me, I really do have a great marriage. I'm not making that up. 
You can talk to my kids, okay? And I'm way more in love than I know. I don't want to belittle Caroline and Mike Palmer and their... But 28 liters, I'm way more in love with my wife than I ever was on the day that I got married. Way more. Way more. And those who have been married a long time understand what I'm saying. But everything that I do, I want to share with my wife. Every honor, every accolade, all those moments, I want to share more and more with my wife. That's what Jesus does for us. He wants you to be a part of his glory and his reigning and understand that he loves you. And I hope that's what you get out of this this morning. Don't be scared to go home. Look forward to that day. And may we say, with the ending of Revelation, come, Lord Jesus, come now. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, what a wondrous thing that you've given to us. And you've given us these love letters, these stories, and the word. And you tell us exactly what's going to happen. We don't have to guess. We just have to wait. And so, Father, I pray that we would be a church that is watchful, that is faithful, that yearns and longs for your return so that we might engage with you on that wedding day. And, Lord, as you even give us just a foretaste, the foretaste of what you have done for us as you gave your life for us, to give us life so that we might look forward to that day where we will eat of this wedding feast anew with you and the new heavens and the new earth and no more tears no more pain no more suffering we get to be with our savior and see you fully face to face forevermore lord that be the thing that leads us to this table and lord may that be what runs our church and our relationships For we pray all this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.